Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to episode 68, Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, grubby guy. And joining us tonight, we've got a little bit of horror, uh, horror royalty in our midst, I think. Well, yes, perhaps, yes. Uh, you know him from such films as Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, Nightbreed, Book of Monsters, films like Your Short Remnant, uh, also oh, yeah. the short film Mindless, also the upcoming Hex Media release For We Are Many, also Borley Rectory, and also the upcoming one-man show I Am Monsters. <gasps> it's Nicholas Vince. Nick, hey! hello! <laughs> Hi, Nick! I think you actually managed to do that without breathing, Mitch. Uh, yes, it was, so in, it was in one breath. Mitch has an incredible ability to hold his breath, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> how, Nick, how are you? Well, apart from choking to death on my own laughter, I'm fine. Um, I'm good, thank it's you very much. good start, that bodes well. Yep. <laughs> Uh, fresh back from Fright Fest, do you have a good time? I had a wonderful time. It was it was great. I mean, I was a bit jet lagged when I started because I flew in from New York on Wednesday morning, Drag. and then I was doing the quiz night on Wednesday night, and I had a great time. Met some great filmmakers and was chatting, and it was really it was just like coming home, you know, family. I think I probably enjoyed this one as much as any other, if not more. So yeah, I had a great time at Friday Fest. Yeah, and um, we'll talk about the particulars of what uh, of what you had going on while you were there in a little while. But uh, for <laughs> now, uh, your film selection for this week. So you've gone with, uh, is it 2004, 2004? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Although I think yeah. I read some of it took two years to make. So All right, okay. I, I don't know. 2004 when it saw the light of day then. Uh, Hellbent. Okay, so uh, Nick, you, when I asked you, because we had this conversation at Friday Fest, I was saying this logistically is the episode that's come together comfortably the quickest in the show's history. Um, when we spoke to you about coming on and then i literally just the next day was like how's wednesday and you were just like yep and it happened and when i asked you if you knew which film you wanted to do you said immediately hellbent so why this one it's kind of obscure it actually got a proper release i remember posters for this when it came out in 2004 and if anyone's seen the cover of the dvd it was the thing which struck me most was the poster which shows an shows a knife a curved blade just about to touch someone's eyeball yes and and that was all i saw about this thing for years i didn't see it in the cinema and just stumbled across it probably about 10 years ago and literally had all i remembered about this thing was knife about to go into eyeball deeply disturbing image and then looked at the poster a little more closely and thought hold on there's a semi-naked guy in the background here (laughs) um Yeah, so absolutely, uh, wearing wearing a, a devil's mask. Uh, I think, oh, hold on, hell bent. Oh, there is a clue here in this time, <laughs> which I completely missed. And then we were just watching it one night. And it, I don't know, we were scrolling through Amazon or something, and just like we sat down and we, and we watched this, or it was on whatever it was on. It's like, oh, this is gay. Oh, wow, this is really gay. <laughs> <laughs> Can't argue with that. No, yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting pick. I hadn't seen it. This was the first time I'd seen it. I actually found it incredibly difficult to get my hands on. But uh, I'll get into my, my thoughts kind of as we progress through. But yeah, good mm. choice, Nick. Yeah, this was a fr- this is a first watch for me as well. And um, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting into this as well because I uh, didn't know what to expect apart from what you mentioned to me when you said why you picked it. And um, mm. yeah, I thought this was a really interesting one. How did Nick pitch it to you? Uh, Nick, I believe, uh, this may not be verbatim, but uh, I believe that you all you said to me was that it was the first openly and overtly gay stock and slash film. Yeah, and I think, I think that's the thing that kind of blew me away. And I think I've quipped in the past that it just basically proves that gay men are just like teenage girls uh, <laughs> in terms of their, their, their desires and you know what it is that they actually want out of life and um, I love it because unlike a lot of stalk and slash you do get to know the central characters quite well 
Mm-hmm. I think it's very slickly done. It, and it's all kind of no holds barred in the first like four minutes of the movie. You know exactly what you are in for. I would certainly agree with you there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it sets its stall out pretty quickly, I think. Um, just, yeah. just before we uh, jump into the actual meat of the film. Uh, so to speak. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I knew you were going to say something the minute that I came out of my mouth. Um, Sorry, mate. Sure, right. Often, if not predictable. Nick, if you've listened to the show before, you might know what's coming next. Uh, it is, I would say, possible to likely that some people out there will be listening to the episode this week without having seen the film. Mm. So um, what I'm going to do is, well, Andy has, I believe, already put 30 seconds on the clock. I can confirm that. Um, I will count down from three, and uh, we're going to ask you to give us and the listeners your best 30-second synopsis of Hellbent. Are you ready, sir? Okay, go. Three, two, one, go. Okay, Hellbent, Stalk and Slash. Uh, There is a serial killer stalking the Halloween Mardi Gras in West Hollywood, which is a big gay community. And four roommates are attending the uh, Hollywood celebration. And some of them meet very unpleasant ends but you know there's a lot going on there apart from that apart yes just stalk and slash gay men very buff time. gay men time <laughs> and on the words very buff gay men the time has come to an end <laughs> Uh, like I would, I would say that. I mean, I think that that, dis- that descended into frantic bullet pointery uh, in there for a little while. But you certainly got the point across. Uh, I hate spoilers. I, I didn't want to give too much away. Nick, I would get used to spoilers pretty quickly because there will be like, many. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll tag them appropriately. We always do. But yeah. Um, but Nick, as you said, I think that. Um, Within the first four minutes of the film, you do know very much the kind of thing that you are in for here. It does set a stall out in a kind of very distinct way. And in a scene that I think plays out really well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We meet um, Michael and George here. Uh, well, we meet Michael, who for some reason has an enormous Pennywise level of balloons. <laughs> I know. It's never fully explained why he's so preciously fond of these balloons. You know, he's got a hot boyfriend who obviously wants to get on with him, but he's really more worried about his balloons. I never quite understood that. <laughs> he's got a, I, I feel like his priorities are shut to hell, if you ask yeah, me. He's got a hot yeah. boyfriend who looks very much like James Franco. That's true. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. But That's, not James Franco. To the point I was like, he's a Franco. He's an undiscovered Franco, brother. He's that <laughs> He's that one, like, like, like that Osborne kid who never wanted to be on the telly. Oh, yeah. So, as you say, Nick, his boyfriend very much wants to get on with him, and that uh, that ensues pretty quickly. It jumps from one shot of them in the woods to them being to them very passionately kissing in the car. Um, I yeah. think the reason for the balloons is that it creates an interesting visual in the car because he has dragged them inside the car <laughs> for this uh, moonlit yeah. tryst. And uh, yeah, it's very much uh, just to, it creates a kind of weird disorienting atmosphere inside the car, and it looks good. And I, I think it's also good for, by the filmmakers as well. Possibly a reason for him to actually put half his torso outside the car, which is a very big mistake on his part. It's a risky venture, yeah. Yeah, that's the because otherwise everything that they could be doing could have been done with the car. So I'm guessing they thought, yeah, well, we you know we've got this image of how he's going to die, but why doesn't he just stay in the car with his boyfriend? I know the answer is balloons. <laughs> spoilers, he gets decapitated. Um, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean you, you are literally spoiling the next 15 seconds of the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's, he's decapitated. And um, uh, yes, and uh, the other guy also dies, but we don't find out until a little later, kind of off, because yeah. he kind of dies off camera. Sure, sure. And then we're right into the credits here contains a hilariously named person called nickname yes yep yep got that <laughs> who plays himself he's the lead singer later on uh, who yeah. uh, sings a song that primarily to my ears anyway seems to revolve around spanking and wanking yep yes yeah. <laughs> I, I believe that i believe that is yes i believe that is the you know the the the, 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 the yeah those are the lyrics basically <laughs> I, I believe those are the central themes <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. Um, this actually is probably a good point to bring this up. The opening credits, I like as soon as it kicked in with the kind of like the very fiery credits and uh, the the kind of punk rock soundtrack. I really love the music in this. 
Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's disco punky beating, you know. And again, it just this is one of the things because I think mean, one of the poster taglines is you know from the creator, you know, from the creator of Halloween and executive producer of Nightmare on Elm Street. They spent some money on this. They had quite a lot of backing on this, mm-hmm. which you can see. You know, it's for something that is basically set on the streets of West Hollywood during the big Halloween celebrations. Probably why they took two years to film it because they had to keep on, you know, they possibly used two Halloweens to get all the crowd scenes. <laughs> <laughs> there are some uh, pretty grievous uh, continuity errors where uh, you see people's hair length changes, and uh, like so they've obviously just went right. We can shoot tonight. Well, I, I look totally. I don't worry about it. Don't worry, just come on. Yeah, well, it's interesting when I was looking at the DVD extras and I was thinking, oh my god, you filmed this really a long time after you you shot your. You know, you actually shot your thing because people's hairlines and hairstyles have changed completely. <laughs> um, so, as you say, it took, it took two years to film. I like that, but, though. I think that's quite charming. Yeah, as I say, I mean, the thing is, once you get past that first scene, you get past the, the opening credits, then you get introduced to our hero, played by Dylan Fergus. Have I got that name right? Yeah. I don't have the IMDb. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in front of me. And again, <laughs> I just love the fact that he's sitting in a police station. Mm-hmm printing out the wanted posters of men he apparently fancies. Well, he's accused of doing That's why he's well, yeah, printing yeah, yeah, his sister certainly casts aspersions that he's printing these out so that he can, uh, let's say, use them in private. She says she says quality time, I believe is the term that she uses. Uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah, this is Eddie, right? Eddie, yeah. Yes. And for the longest time, I didn't know if he was a policeman or not. I found, uh, I found one, whether or not he was a policeman, and two, what his actual function was in terms of like what his job was and things. Uh, I kind of felt like I pieced that together from anecdotal evidence throughout the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's referenced quite a bit later on that you know he's um, you know um, about his eye, but mm-hmm. it's you know the thing is it's very clear that he wants to re- really be a policeman, but something is stopping him from doing so. Yes, um, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, yeah. that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, and I think that like I I did, I did really like the part when um uh, obviously like the first the thing that happens straight after this because you his sister who also works there uh, Maria yeah Maria thank you uh she kind of comes in and uh, shows him these extremely grisly crime scene photos of uh, the murder that we've just witnessed and also the murder of uh, the other guy in the car bit of a boner killer a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, they kind of they kind of both muse on the fact that that's revolting. But I think it's really funny when see when the chief calls him into uh, his office and uh, he's like, "Oh, I know that working here isn't all that you've hoped for," and you kind of think that he's going to give him a really exciting job to do. Um, I think that that's the way he kind of pulls you with it. And then basically, he's like, "Oh, I know that working here isn't kind of all that you've hoped for, but uh, can you go and put these posters up?" <laughs> <laughs> But then it was after this that I got really confused because in the next scene, this is when I was still like, is he a policeman? Because in the next scene, he's wearing an incredibly tight police uniform. And I was like, wait, what is going on here? Is is this what the uniform is? But he asks his his commander whether or not he can wear his... If he's going to have to hand these things out, is it okay if I can wear my dad's uniform? (laughs) Which he then gets out of the closet... Obviously, once I and obviously he doesn't have a real police badge, so he therefore goes into a carnival shop to buy a plastic police badge. But yeah, it's amazing that he's physically exactly the same size as his father. Yeah, I mean literally. I find yeah, like it, to to the inch. I find yeah. it extremely hard to believe that his father, who would have been a policeman maybe thirty years prior to this, <laughs> would have worn such a skin tight, revealing police uniform. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I, I, I find that. But hey, you know, you're going to show off your lead actor's attributes. Well, well, exactly. well yeah, and uh, exactly. there is no shortage of that f- throughout this film, really. <laughs> um, he had, so after, kind of, we get this kind of montage of him trying it uh, with and without the hat and stuff like that. Then he heads out to start postering and uh, he goes to a tattoo parlor first, then out into a street and has a conversation with a character whose name we will later learn is uh, Jake. Jake. Um, Jake. I don't, at this time, uh, we kind of both commented on it when we were talking about it. But um, he, for one thing, kind of has fallen in love with maybe three people in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film. But also... Two of them like, are criminals. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, this, this uh, literally everyone uh, in uh, that you meet in this film is incredibly conventionally handsome. Yes. That's true. Well, I don't know. I'm just trying to think because there's the little... But um, Joey, 
Right. The, you know, the one that, that he's very protective towards. It's not conventionally. Ha- I mean, he's very much, you know, he's not got the chiseled jaw of the rest of them. Yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, three, of, three of these flat roommates have got incredibly chiseled jaws and and so on. And then there's little Joey who's like, but I. You, the the run to about, the litter. <laughs> yeah, the run to the litter. Who you know, has to be, you know, really, he's obviously got a crush on the jock. And, you know, the, there's this whole setup. Yeah, he's got this terrible crush. But I think what I loved about, you know, the poster seat, the poster in the tattoo parlor where he meets Jake is this terribly awkward staring that goes on whilst Jake is literally having something tattooed onto his back. We don't know what it is until later in the movie. Yes. And that thing of, oh, my God, you caught me looking. You can't catch me looking. And that whole staring across the road. And I know I know, gay men do that kind of thing all the time. But I did like that whole scene in the, the um, tattoo parlor of him, just like that thing. No, don't look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm not really looking. I, I, look. I think that he is incredibly visibly mortified when that happens. <laughs> yeah. And then Jake is just such an arsehole to him. Oh, I Yeah, more or less the whole film. I have a, but in this instance in particular, you're right, he's a complete dick. Yeah, which obviously just makes Eddie wants him all the more. And, it, you know, it's, it's that thing of like, oh my God, I really, really like this guy and he's being horrible to me, therefore that makes it even worse and I therefore want him more and more. Treat me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the incredible coincidence is that they keep on meeting up later that evening in the middle of west hollywood during halloween when there are literally thousands of people in the street yeah they're, they're just drawn to each other clearly there's a magnetism yeah. there yeah it's karma must be karma must be must be um speaking of character introductions though we do meet uh, eddie's roommate Chaz in uh, what i think what i think is like a like an incredible character intro Chaz but, is my favorite uh yeah where um Chaz is found by eddie having a threesome with a man and a woman in a stationary car in the middle of a very busy road. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's the fact that the girl immediately says, I'm over 18, I can prove I'm over 18. I know, I know. And then and then you kind of think that that's all, and then you obviously the other guy kind of like stumbles out of the car and stuff. I think it's all pretty funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I had a great time with it. I have a great time with almost every scene that's got Chaz in it. Yeah, I agree. With you. I think he's a really, really cool character. Uh, you know, he does worldly wise to absolute tea but i like <laughs> the, the guy stumbling out of the of the van is just like you know he's just looks up smiles and says hey how you doing <laughs> no shame it's just like yeah i've just been caught but we're not gonna worry about this at all yeah last of the kind of major character intros next toby toby yeah introduced uh straight off the bat as an enormous incredibly muscly drag queen yeah which and i i kind of find him really kind of interesting it's really interesting that you, you, you guys won't know, but it, the tropes of gay men in West, you know, these are the classic types. And I think Tobe is playing against his, you know, it's, it's later revealed why he's wearing drag. He wants to be known for his mind rather than just his normal good looks mm-hmm. yeah. uh, or, or his incredible good looks, you know, and you've got the little proto gay in, jo- in Joey. He's going out trying to get the jock who he's obviously had a crush on for, for so long. I love the line. I want to get this. I, I can't remember the character's name, but I want to get the object of his affections telephone number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jared. I, Jared. Yeah. I want to get Jared's telephone number. I thought you already had his number. Yeah, but I want him to give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. That is a good line. It's really good. It's like, yeah, he's obviously been stalking it. He's obviously managed to get the phone number from somewhere, you know, from a mutual friend. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, so they're kind of like, so they're heading out for the night. Like, as you say, Nick, it's Halloween in West Hollywood. They're heading out. Now, did I get this right? See when they park up to walk to um, the club. Uh-huh. Mm. Do they park at the site of the murders from the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a significant distance to the street. Yeah, so it's obviously the easiest place to park. There's a kind of frisson here about parking in the place where the murders took place. Um, and obviously, the dra- Toby the drag queen is—it's like you're expecting me to walk in these heels through a through a wood. It's like, yeah. <laughs> 
Who would ask their mate to do that? Um, so also, also the uh, on the subject of Toby, um, the victim of the first fake out jump scare here, which I think is a pretty good one actually. When uh, Joey reaches outside of his car window and into his and grabs him. Yeah, and I think it, that's one of the things I do like about it is it is actually genuinely scary at times. Like, you know, they are just the setups, the the you know, in, in the forest, you know, the people in the forest. All those things of the you know the figure moving suddenly in front of the camera. Okay, we've seen them all before, but they're just nicely done, and they make the most of the forest and the guys. And it's just the way they invite what happens to them later on when they see the hunky guy in the mask. Rather than being you know terribly scared, it's like oh he's very well built. You know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stop. This is this is literally right. This is literally right now, isn't it? When they see the kind of the guy in the devil mask, like you say, um, from a distance yeah. in, the, in the forest. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you know, okay, well. All they do is just stand there and admire his physique and make <laughs> comments about it. Yeah. Even when he produces a huge knife, it doesn't seem to worry them. No, too. not at all. And to be honest, in that scenario, in the woods, uh, right on the spot of a previous murder, I would be incredibly nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the minute that I connected those dots, I'd be running like fuck. But far yeah. from being nervous, they uh, all moon him. They moon yeah. him until he runs away. Yes. It's so. Like, it's like, but how ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> mm. Yeah, because that's obviously what you do in the middle of the woods when you see it. But I think that is kind of set up quite nicely. And, you know, having met a lot of gay men in my time, I can believe it. I can understand that. <laughs> Kind of straight to the carnival here. I think there's there's um in the kind of opening montage or that you see of the carnival that they're going to, a couple of really good costumes in here, particularly the bleeding skull mask. Some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I mean this is I I've never been to West Hollywood during Halloween. I've heard and I've seen uh you know this is it was obviously filmed during Halloween in West Hollywood, which is a huge party, um where you do see the most extraordinary costumes and people really do like because Halloween is huge in America. That's what he was telling me. More money is spent in America at Halloween than it is at Christmas. Really? It's a it's a bigger holiday. I need to move. That way I might have <laughs> people making a fuss over my birthday. <laughs> One thing that I clocked here as well, um, I had to pause it for some reason at this point uh, for a sec. I can't remember what it was it was going to do, and I noticed that this had been uh, this had this had been going for half an hour at this point. And I was like, oh, this mm. is uh, this is flying in. Oh yeah, it moves at an incredible pace. Yeah, I I think that's what I like about it's like the opening three minutes, as you said. You know, you know exactly where you are. You, you know, the first murders happened in the, like literally the first four minutes of your movie you know exactly what's going on then you get your character introduction and development done in you know in an amusing way and then your next thing you've got somebody in the woods you've got the obvious threat and the setup for what comes afterwards and then the your, your demon is always in the background somewhere he follows them around like and they, they can see him quite clearly they have like face-to-face interactions like albeit they're kind of through chain link fences and stuff but yeah these guys are still not bothered about the fact that this massive guy is following them around because they're gay men and he's good looking (laughs) true true yeah yeah i hadn't considered that i think it is that whole sexual frisson about the fact you know hey there's a really good looking guy it just they just don't seem to have made the connection whatsoever (laughs) i think the lead character eddie is the one who seems to be kind of nervous about what's going on see that, um, that's the policeman in him mm-hmm. yeah oh the wannabe policeman True. because of course he failed his you know he was kicked out because of medical grounds which we do find out and i think it's coming up fairly soon isn't it it's uh, pretty, pretty much in the next scene yeah 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 um yeah because eddie kind of spots uh jake the the guy we we're talking about from earlier what they had the kind of unpleasant exchange with outside the tattoo parlor yeah. He kind of makes his approach and goes for kind of classic pickup line stuff about how a childhood visual impairment stopped him from being a police officer. Well, this is all <laughs> this is all inside the meat locker that they find yes. they find themselves in pretty quickly, which is uh, which is which is a club and not a meat storage facility. True. Yeah. In reality, it was a church, and apparently, from the research that I did on uh, IMDb trivia, <laughs> they had to like they ran over and they had to very quickly pull down all the cages and like the body parts and stuff from the roof uh, in time for like morning prayers. Because 
that's a big set. That's a massive set. It remind, puts me in mind of the boiler room from Hellraiser 3. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, all those cages. But also, I love the fact that you, you've got that, the pseudo-violence. Yeah, I think it's actually, we've just skipped a bit where Joey is in the club and he's dragged up on stage by nickname. Um, <laughs> the eponymous nickname. Um <laughs> And then cut up with mock chainsaws and covered in blood and glitter. Yeah, that sounds very much like a stage show I would want to put on. That's right up my street. I, when this happened, I kind of assumed that what would happen would be all these people were going at him with um, these these fake chainsaws. And in the middle of that, one of them was real. I was yeah. almost certain that that was going to happen. And I'm not going to lie, I was initially quite disappointed that that wasn't going to be how that played out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess you kind of like it's you know, people would start panicking if they did suddenly realize that somebody had been completely it's a fair, dismembered. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. In front of them. Yeah, that, um, that's me. Uh, that's me um, reaching for um, a nice visual at the expense of a sensible MO for your killer. <laughs> <laughs> but in style over substance there. But yeah, 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 right, Mitch, to say that yeah, Eddie does approach Jake again here, and Jake is once again an unmitigated asshole. Yeah. I think his opening line is, what do you want, Eddie? Cut your losses, man. Get out of there. Yeah, yeah. And then they kind of go off, which then leaves Chaz looking after Joey. Terrible uh, idea. Yeah, terrible idea. But again, he obviously intends to do it. And then this really cute guy smile, smiles at him. Though, to be fair, it is set up that, you know, the object of Joey's affections is obviously looking for him so Chaz feels it's okay to wander off and leave his friend in the you know in the room with the boyfriend or the prospective jock boyfriend Mm -hmm. who then of course goes off and leaves Joey by himself and you're just like it is that whole play of like you know he is he's just so happy because he has you know he has actually been given the jock's telephone number by the jock and he's so sweet and he's so happy (laughs) He makes an incredibly formal approach to Jared, though. He gives him a business card in a nightclub. <laughs> it's like, he's got his telephone. Yeah, gives it, it, it yeah. And the friend's like, oh, I got, you know, stalker already. Um, <laughs> Where the fuck did stop. he have that business card? Because he's wearing a very skimpy leather strap outfit. <laughs> in his jeans pocket. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose it always goes to me. But I love the fact that originally when he first comes out, he wants to go out in nothing but... The leather. That's right. <laughs> the leather jog strap, but it's Eddie that makes them say, no, you're going to put on a pair of jeans. You're just... A... <laughs> and then wraps them around with a chain and padlocks it just to... Well, yeah, <laughs> that's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Like a choker leash on them. Yeah. <laughs> I did like the whole thing of like, you know, uh, Joe's death, he loses his head. But it's the way the body is discovered by the Queen's. Um, yeah, I, I like I don't I don't want to blow past this scene because there's a lot like there's a lot of stuff about the uh, Joey's murder in the bathroom after Jared leaves him that I think is worth kind of noting because I think a lot of things about it technically and visually I think play it really really nicely. Yeah, mm. this was the first point where I was like, oh, I really like that they've gone for that kind of super neon visual here, the the reds and the blues really strong. Mm. I was like, I'm on board for the palette of this, and actually I think the um the effect when like you said when the the two guys come in and find them in the toilet. I think that the headless corpse effect that's there looks really good, and then when it twitches, I was I was like, ha Because yeah. yes. at first I was like, oh, it's just like it's. I was like, it's a good looking dummy, but it's obviously like somebody's sitting with their legs through the hole in the floor or in a wall, or and yeah, I think it looks really good. Yeah, but what I also really like it set up so that you know the two guys going to the toilet. It's first like they're shocked, and then they think, oh god, somebody's set it up in the loo that there's a headless corpse. You know, it's obviously fake. And then it twitches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's like a really good punchline to that scene, I think. Yeah, and I love the fact that um, your um, your serial killer has got a yellow plastic bag with him so he can carry the head away with him. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, which, like, that pays off beautifully later Oh, yeah, on. yeah. He's very much carrying those heads around like so much candy. Yeah. Excellent. Very good. Very nice, Andy. Very nice. Also, have we actually talked? So I think, yeah, there's all that happened. And then we have the, you know, when they come back to the meat locker. um, This is when Eddie and um, Jake come back to the meat locker. They discover a murder's taken place. They're not sure what's going on. 
but Jake wants to get back inside to get his motorbike. And I, I got confused at that stage because I thought, oh, and your, your motorbike was originally outside the... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this is, all, this is yeah. not a fair bit down the road because we um, can't even see us often in Jake and Eddie's relationship mm. here. Jake's kind of coming round to Eddie when he's yeah. telling him the story about how his eye occluded him from being yeah. in the police. And as much as he likes shooting, he hasn't really been able to do it because he can't really aim properly. And there's That's this kind of right. sweet little moment where they're at one of those kind of like a coconut shy type affair, yeah. but it's like you shoot a little target or you shoot water in the clown's mouth. And uh, Jake kind of helps him to figure out his aim with his dodgy eye, and he still manages to miss the you know the target entirely. Oh, and it's, a, it's an appalling effort. Yes, it is appalling, but a very good setup for what happens later on. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And in, in between all this, before we get back to get the car, uh, the the motorbike. Sorry, Chaz buys it. Yes, because Chaz, who's obviously left Joey by himself, and then managed to find a woman. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he is snorting cocaine off a very large pair of breasts. <laughs> Which then you were talking about the colouring, kind of like you, the, the neon, the colouring goes a little, even a little bit weirder during, I and mean, you've got flashing lights, it's obviously in the middle of a big dance thing, you've got music going on, etc, etc. We also did see him um, taking a little pill of some sort, so I think mm. he's uh, very much uh, in a Disco Biscuit related moment on that dance floor. It's quite possible. Yeah. Quite possible. I think that uh, Chaz's death is great. Um, it's the scene that I have in my notes, obviously called Murder on the Dance Floor. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, because yeah, obviously he's kind of dancing and obviously because he's under the influence of a couple of things that obviously it's shot in this way that's really disorientating. And I love the fact that you don't actually see what's happening. You just hear it. Yeah. I think that the entire way this plays out is really clever. It's potentially my favorite death in the film, although I do like Joey's. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> about... Uh, the fact that the killer obviously wouldn't chainsaw up Joey during a live musical number, but he has no qualms whatsoever about slicing a man up in the middle of a dance floor and decapitating him. Yes. Like and splitting the, hairs. But again, it's cleverly done because, you know, he slits him to begin with, so he falls to his knees. But there is that lovely high shot of the headless corpse on the ground with this circle of people around it again, Kind of still dancing, obviously off their heads on something, not quite sure what's going on. And then we move on. That we don't really get to see their reaction. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. But, I mean, by the time Jake and Eddie get back to the club, it's already cordoned off and the police have emptied it out. So th- yeah. things have moved on fast. Yeah, yeah. And then, yes, we've got the whole climbing of the fence, etc. And there is the moment that they put on the poster where... Because basically, a serial killer is carrying a sickle, yeah. and and that's what allowed apparently you know he's strong enough to decapitate people with one blow. Um, <laughs> he is a very large man. He is a very large man. <laughs> he's a well-built gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> so it is that moment where you get the knife going through the fence and it touches the glass eye. Great. Yeah, I was very, I was very surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. I just not seen it coming when I saw it originally. No, I didn't either. Um, I and I'm glad, I'm glad that neither of you two did either because I never see anything coming and I can never tell if something's <laughs> clever if it's just me being oblivious. So uh, <laughs> get to know there's some consensus at the table about how that played out. Yeah. Not long after this, we get Toby's death, and I think that the actual run-up to this is kind of sad. Oh, yeah, mm. that's really sad. Toby, for me, is the most interesting character out of all of them. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. The way that whole scene is playing, that whole setup is played, is really nice. You, you, you really get to understand why this guy is put on this drag, why it's important mm-hmm. to him. And um and as I said Nick earlier I think that like um it's interesting that you know you you like Toby's framed as a character who's trying to be kind of uh, understood and appreciated and valued for more than his kind of good looks. Yeah, because we mm. do see earlier and we we get a hint of it later. He talks earlier about the fact that he's on this big billboard, and then we see it later on in the film. You get a kind of hint at what his home life might be like um, mm. with his parents or his relationship with his parents mm-hmm. because he talks about he's got this big billboard of him in his pants. And he wants to stand in front of it and pose and drag and then send it to his mum because it'll drive her crazy. And I, I just think all that stuff, like I think this character more than any of the other characters in the film is the most sympathetic, well-rounded character that here. And you get more about this guy who dies than pretty much anyone else. Yeah, I, mean, I think that kind of like the way that this, and obviously like you said, this is all in kind of pursuit of him kind of trying to stand on his own for reasons other than his appearance. 
Um, but ultimately, when the way that he kind of meets his end here is that he kind of tries to seduce the devil, uh, the killer. Yeah. And the fact that when he realizes that isn't working, he's eventually like, oh, this is what I normally look like. I think it and just kind of throws him his driver's license. I think that's really sad. But it's also it's that incredible irony is that the devil is not interested in a drag queen and only really wants to kill him when he reveals himself as a man. Yeah. You know, yeah. that terrible, terrible irony is like, you know, like, oh, no, no, no. You know, you can walk away now. You know, you're absolutely fine. Yeah. You know, he's not going to hurt you if you just keep your drag act uh-huh. on and walk away. Yeah. The scene, the scene plays out pretty smartly on a number of levels. I yeah. I, I, I think that it's uh, probably, in my opinion, the scene in the film that does the best work for me. But the minute he puts down that bag of heads, <laughs> you know, there's trouble afoot. Yeah. But also, it's kind of like that whole thing of throwing the driver's license at him to prove that he looks like, you know, as a man, before he fully, you know, he takes off the thing, and therefore giving away his address which yeah. then sets up the fact that the serial killer, you know, the devil, let's just call him the devil. Yeah. It can then set you up for the third act of the movie, basically. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, because he knows where he's headed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So we join Jake and Eddie briefly at the police station. They are basically saying, this guy came for me. He scratched my eyeball with a, with a sickle. Yeah. Nothing's really done about it. There's a really nice moment here as well. It's quite sad again, and it, I guess it's the moment where um, Eddie takes his sister aside and says, look, can you do me a favour here and just play this down so that the ga- the other guys, the other cops, don't think that this was like a homophobically motivated attack mm. on me because it would make my life here at work a misery. And I think that's a real shame. That's sad that he had to do that. Yeah. Which I have to say, I completely, I kind of understand that. But you kind of think, this police station is in West Hollywood, which is the centre, you know, it's like Brewer Street in London, it's, you know, it's the centre of the gay community in Los Angeles, is yeah. West Hollywood. You know, it's not as if they don't know he's gay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at his, his police uniform. Uh, it yeah. looks like a, stri- like, a, like a male stripper's police uniform. <laughs> that was his dad. Show some respect. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's, 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 what reputation? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, like get over yourself in some in some way. But I think it's that internalized homophobia. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the experience of, of very many gay men. Actually, people are a lot more accepting, but because of the way you've been treated in the past, you do carry around this internalized homophobia. Yeah, um, I feel part of what he's doing as well is it's kind of playing into that. Maybe it's a stereotype. Maybe it's legit. I don't know. But that um, certainly the police have a kind of ingrained homophobia in them. Yeah, I, I think even though, you know, as I say, because they're in West Hollywood. And like, listen, this was made in 2004. Homophobia is still with us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, a little bit later on, they make, you know, you know, the comments are made about, yeah, uh, condoms don't like condoms, but they keep you safe. It, you know, <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Mitch hates lines where people are talking to themselves. Like he hates when a character goes off and they, they have a big spiel talking to themselves. But I really like this one because it has a point, it has a message. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's true. It's Nobody not, likes a condom. It's not exactly like, worded like your average PSA, though. It's like, hey, kids, condoms suck, but they keep you safe. Yeah. It kind of also refers back to a. A moment at the beginning of the movie when they first uh, arise, arrive at the carnival and they look in their goodie bags and <laughs> there are no CDs but there are green, green condoms. condoms yeah. Yeah, who wants yeah. to suck a green dick? <laughs> is the question that's posed. Yes. They it's also, a, by it's the a legitimate query. Yeah, they also got a pineapple flavoured lube. Yes. Which uh, I just. That's I, not all bad news. I can't imagine the waft of pineapple mingling with all the waft of body stuff. No, just give me pl- a regular old lube. Thanks very much. <laughs> this is another one of those episodes, by the way, where just every now and again something goes off in my head being like, my mum listens to this show every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one was for Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, anyone want to take this juncture to say hello to my mum? <laughs> Hi, Mitch's mum. <laughs> 
Moving swiftly on, um, yeah, um, uh, Eddie and Jake, yeah, they get out of the police station. And it's worth mentioning, actually, that the uh, the scene that we were talking about just there, um, the condom suck with the keep you safe thing, just to ground it in a little bit of context, they do go back, uh, they go back to Eddie's place. Yes. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they are kind of, again, I think that um, there's a really nice and kind of very abrupt gear shift into tension in this sequence when Jake and Eddie are kind of getting down to it and sure. uh, mm-hmm. Jake handcuffs Eddie to the bed and then when he goes to get a condom he gets murdered and at that point well I'm, no well not murdered he gets, certainly gets, he gets sorry he doesn't get murdered Jesus no but he gets he gets kind of like incapacitated um, and I think I think that like that I think that the way that that shifts into this really threatening situation plays out really nicely as Jake well. is an extremely threatening lover yes <laughs> But also, what I really like about that scene is that you get the feeling that Eddie is really bad at this. Oh, I this picking up Ben. Just, it's not like he's a virgin by any manner of means. You can't be that good looking in West Hollywood and still be a virgin. <laughs> but he's still not. He's just really bad at picking up men. But also, as you say, Mitch, it is that whole thing of like, how the hell do we put one of our people to make them really vulnerable, handcuffed to the bed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a real fear of mine i would be one day handcuffed to a bed and then someone would just like leave me there like or like a gerald's game situation a Ger- exactly a gerald's game situation just don't allow yourself to be handcuffed have an exit strategy yeah and again it is all the details of that isn't it? it's like okay well where are the keys to the, the handcuffs well it's on my key ring which we we've already seen established as sitting in the front door yeah mm-hmm. um but it's, it's also the fact that he only puts on when before he before Jake leaves Eddie, he's only put on one of the bracelets. Eddie actually puts on the other one himself. You know, he he's obviously really into this he's game. Dirty, he's that dirty wee bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as the devil advances, Eddie kind of gets free and kind of subdues him. But uh, crucially, doesn't double tap. Doesn't kill him. No, 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 no. no. And yeah, well, Eddie kind of escapes to call an ambulance. The devil awakens. Yeah. <laughs> yes it's at this point and i i love this that we uh that the devil is a showman has gone to the trouble of uh bringing all of the heads of everyone that he's killed up to this point to this location not to leave them lying around in kind of like a fancy tableau but instead just stash them in a cupboard so that they all tumble out at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yes it's like i love the fact that it's not necessarily theatrical it's just quite a funny joke yep just <laughs> Tumbling out of the cupboard like marbles at a bag. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, we get them out onto the fire escape, and that setting up of being the bad shot. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah I like that. Yeah. I, I, I like how the kind of ending of this plays out. Yeah, I like the way it's, it cycles back to a couple of things in a way that I think is really nice. Yeah. And also, the devil takes the time at one point to suck Eddie's false eye out of his eye. Yes. I love that. Yes, that is amazing. <laughs> I, li- I, I kind of like that because, you know, when he tried to stab him in the eye earlier and it hit him and it hit the yeah. glass eye, I quite like the fact that he's like, I told you I'd get it. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah this this all plays out it's it's um i i i think that like the, the end of this is mental but i quite like it in that um even yeah. though it turns into a deadly game of cat and mouse mm. yeah i know you're not one for them yeah but uh, it's 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 kind of it's a time sensitive deadly game of cat and mouse it doesn't it doesn't waste it doesn't waste any time just like the rest of this film actually <laughs> no. um but yeah basically how this ends up the kind of final standoff that you get is um you have uh, eddie kind of hanging on to the fire escape by one hand with a gun in his free hand while uh, this kind of tussle goes on between the not dead jake very i mean he's, he's at death's door yeah but uh, he's kind of struggling with the devil and as you say nick it kind of comes back down to the fact that it was seeded earlier on in the film that eddie is this terrible shot and it's like is he gonna kind of overcome this to kind of land the death blow on the devil and the short answer to that is yes eventually (laughs) (laughs) but i like the fact that he's actually not hanging on by his hand he's actually swinging from the handcuffs yeah yeah. from the handcuffs it's like he falls over the edge misses his handful but the free end of the handcuff catches on the um fire escape so he's actually swinging so in order to get the gun he has to swing to get it whilst the devil is holding on to um uh, jake and about to kill him you know the devil's holding jake who's screaming and he shoot him oh no that no he actually says shoot, shoot me, me. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Assuming that if he tries to shoot him, he'll miss and hit the devil because he's such a bad shot. <laughs> ah. <laughs> his night's taken a turn, a real turn for the worst. <laughs> and now look where he's wound up. He's got egg in his face. Oh, and of course, the joke is that he does, you know, rather than shooting the devil the first time, he actually manages to shoot Jake. Yeah, he grazes him. I think that's. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I, I really laughed when that happened. I laughed as well. I've got to be honest. Yeah. I laughed quite heartily when he accidentally shot him. <laughs> Go from would be lover to gunshot victim. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> if I had a pound. Um, uh, but yeah, he gets him eventually. He gets the devil yeah. eventually. Yeah. Kinda. Um, he shoots him in the face, so pretty much. Yeah, also, I quite like the fact, that, does he shoot his eye out? No, he shoots him in the forehead. All oh, right, okay. I was kind of yeah. hoping it would be like an eye for an eye, um, an eye for an eye visual. No such luck. Ah. So, yeah, you kind of get, and th- and I think that this is um this is kind of like a kind of slashery trope that I think plays out in a nice and kind of in a way that I hadn't seen before here as well, when you have the people kind of like clustered around an ambulance in the kind of aftermath of your kind of standoff. Mm. And it's that point you find out, of course, that like um, in terms of uh, Eddie and Jake, they're going to like, they're mostly fine, is my understanding. Yep. Um, <laughs> or, or, Jake, Jake's going to have some rehab. I yeah, think. but they've survived, though. I mean, it's just at this point, also, of course, that you find out that the devil has survived, and the closing three or four seconds of this are incredible. When he you know, looks in on the devil, his eyes burst open, he opens his mouth, and his glass eye is poking out of his <laughs> mouth, and then the ambulance door slams shut. And I think, like, as a kind of like final punch for a film that's moved so slightly all the way through, it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> But I also love the fact of the way of getting around pulling the mask off the devil's face. It explains saying, oh yeah, it's a, well, it's a mess you, under there. It's a mess under there. You don't want to look at that. <laughs> like, yes, we do. <laughs> of course we do. It's like, yeah, I think your priorities are off, man. It's like, I do want to look at I wouldn't mind a quick look. And with that, we are out. That's um, the end of Hellbent. And yeah, yeah, and so ends Hellbent. I just want to quickly touch on one thing. Um, Nick, do you know how the, the name came about? of the, I sorry, the title of the film? I have no idea. Uh, I found this in my research that Paul Etheridge, the director, started an online Name the Movie contest, sorry, created by the producers, um, to put in an attempt to kind of publicise the film. But uh, director Paul Etheridge was initially horrified at some of the initial submissions, which included such titles as... 28 Gays Later, oh God. Boy Meets Knife, Queer Eye for the Dead Guy. And on one of the last days of this competition, Hellbent was submitted and that was the title that was chosen. So this title was put in the hands of people who really weren't playing the game. To be fair, if you did it now, it would probably end up being called Slashy McSlashface. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I don't know that you would get such a big release for a, you know, a gay movie. These, I don't know if it actually covered its costs, but it didn't do as well as expected, and therefore there was no sequel. Right. Okay. Do, do, you, do you know how much this was made for, in it, by any chance? Uh, box office was one hundred eighty-three grand. One hundred eighty-three thousand. Yeah. Um, no idea of the budget. No reading budget. I would. I, I would obviously. I would stake it. Was it'd be a lot more than yeah, that. I was going to say it'd be made for yeah. considerably more, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there was no sequel, even though it was obviously set up for a sequel. Mm-hmm. And I was actually something I was going to ask you is because I read this and when I was looking, preparing, I was looking, reading some of the reviews on Amazon, and someone was saying, oh, "I was really looking forward to finding out what the backstory of this." There's no backstory for the oh, for no. the the demon, and I'm thinking. Kind of pleased there wasn't a backstory for the demon. Yeah, whether or not that bothers me is very case by case. To be honest, sometimes, uh, sometimes haven't leaving those questions as unanswered as this film does because you really are no further on uh, knowing who he is by the end than yeah. you are at the start. Absolutely not. And like, um, and it doesn't bother me at all in this film. But I also have a very hard time putting an objective standard on when it does bother me. Mm. Like, but uh, but no, for me it's not a problem here. But it is sometimes. I really like this film. Um, there was obviously some budgetary limitations at play. You can kind of see that when you watch it now. Some things are shot in a weird way where they look a bit, I'm just going to say, a bit cheap. Um, mm. To be honest, I watch so much stuff that looks like that that it doesn't really bother me. No. But, you know, I like that it takes the, the kind of character tropes from, let's call it a hetero slasher, right? So mm. you've got your kind of final girl, you've got your slutty character, you've got your tough girl 
and they kind of just invert that into the gay characters and I, I really like that I like that they've, they've taken what is essentially a very well known trope within the slasher film and flipped it and I like that there is an attempt like an earnest attempt made to kind of dig into the, the struggles that these guys have got while at yeah. the same time not bludgeoning you to death with it they manage to keep it light and they manage to keep it an entertaining slasher film and it never gets too bogged down in the fact in fact it never really gets bogged down at all and the fact that it's the first gay slasher it just is and, yeah. and that's cool it doesn't have to be a preachy thing and it isn't and yeah. it's all the better for that I, I, I completely agree um, I think that um, me and Andy did talk about this briefly before we um, before we started recording but I think that like a lot of the time in kind of horror that was coming out around this time and kind of honestly in quite a lot of kind of comedy and stuff like that as well there was a lot of kind of you would come across gay characters in films and their key personality point was that they were gay Yeah, and, and by that I mean that that you would learn nothing else about them at all. And I think that, yeah, I think that this film does a great job of kind of like shunning a lot of things that Hollywood in general got wrong mm-hmm. about how to portray those things at that time. And uh, yeah, I think that um, it does like really, really great character stuff. I think that considering you're watching a film that unfolds over the events of what appears to be kind of like 24 hours or less, yeah, um, I think that it does a really good job at introducing backstories and proper traits and real kind of rounded personalities to these people without having and there's no real points in it where i felt like i was being like beaten to death with exposition which i think are kind of like backstory and stuff like that it never feels crowbarred in i think that it's mm. um it's like it's a it's a really nice character piece without ever feeling like it's actually leaning into that too aggressively yeah i think that this is why i was so pleased about it and i think you know it deserves a larger audience because it's actually if you just look at it it's a really good slasher movie mm-hmm. yeah um, absolutely you know the, the editing that you know the story then all those all those reasons you've just elucidated it's the characters just happen to be gay yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and and that's what i really liked about it i thought what i was found was so refreshing as you say you know gay characters generally speaking get killed off in the first reel um in most hollywood horror films mm-hmm. Um, but here it's just like no, they just happen to be gay and they're they're fun guys and this is the way it is. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, and Nick, this was a great pick. It's one of the more interesting conversations that we've had in a while, and I think it's it's a film that I really took to. Um, yep. Thanks for bring, thanks for bringing it in. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. I like I say, this is the first time I've seen it, and I, I generally consider myself quite a big slasher guy. Um, uh-huh. And this was the first time that this one's crossed my path. And do you know what? I will go back to this film. And I, I would advise people, if you can find it, check it out because there's some pretty cool stuff in here. Yeah, it's available, I think, for £3.79 on Amazon as a disc. And I do advise getting the disc rather than the uh, watching it online for the simple reason that the disc is much better transferred. When we first watched this... You couldn't see most of the action because it was so dark. Oh, yeah. We there was a slight issue with the one that I watched, and so much as some of the audio was a little muddy, mm. um, and some of the the visuals were similarly. Um, it's interesting to know that the certainly the, the transfer on the DVD is better. Yeah, it's worth yeah because you get because a, a lot of the stuff are. And I remember we must have watched it. We might even have watched it on a video rental. Oh! Uh, <laughs> possibly, or a DVD rental. But my memory of first watching this was getting really frustrated because it was so dark, you couldn't see a lot of the action that was going on. But when I watched the DVD that I got off Amazon a while ago, it's much better quality. And you can seriously see what's going on. Nick, I think if we uh, if we begin kind of recapping what you've been up to with Fright Fest last year, I think it's fair to say that you've had um, a pretty good 12 months. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, so obviously um, at Fright Fest last year, a, lot, um, a film that a lot of people talked about and uh, we had him on the show as well, of course, was um, uh, Stuart Sparks' Book of Monsters. Yeah. Mm. Um, which I, I like despite being a film that on paper takes almost every box of things that I don't particularly enjoy in horror it was one of my favourite films I saw at the festival last year I thought it was brilliant um, oh, thank you. And, and obviously that's gone on to get kind of like um, a real fuss made about it kind of on both sides mm. of the Atlantic and stuff like that it must have been a great thing to be a part of it was I mean it was a great thing for two reasons A it was so wonderfully put together I just loved the whole concept of people on the kickstarter choosing the monsters choosing deaths etc the guys paul and stuart uh the writer and director assembled a great team which they'd worked on on the previous film and it was such a smooth shoot in terms of everything really ran clockwork lots of talented people involved in it 
And really thanks to Dread Central, who picked it up at Fright Fest. Yeah, they yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you know, they, linked, they literally inked the deal, I think, whilst they were there. And then really paid it so much care and attention. Yeah. Um, you know, through Epic Pictures, it had a theatrical re- release in the USA. And, you know, it was really heavily promoted by Dread and Epic Pictures. Um, it was so good to see that that's what became of it. And that's rare. So, yeah, I was really, really pleased for that. Yeah, yeah. Fast forward to Fright Fest this year. And mm-hmm. uh, you're back this time with uh, Hex Media's For We Are Many. For We Are Many. Again, it was just really fun to be part of this. I was The first way I got involved in it was uh, with the original campaign and, in fact, submitted a film to be part of this anthology, which didn't make it into the final cut, uh, simply because there was another film uh, of a better quality that had a very similar theme. That was my film, uh, Necessary Evils. Right. That was what happened. It was a re- so there was uh, that was what the way I first got involved. Then Paddy Murphy invited me to be part of his short film Intervention. Yeah, um, which is part of the anthology. Uh, and then uh, Laurie asked me to play um, the character of Legion. Uh, of course, yeah. The demon at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. I'd seen the movie on the small screen up in uh, the studio up in, in Scotland. Right. And so I'd seen it already, but I actually was really pleased with the result when we saw it in on the big screen with an audience. Uh, it went over really well as well. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's it's hard. You know, we all know anthologies. They can all be hit and miss. Certainly, yeah. Obviously. But I was really pleased with the high standard of everything throughout. Obviously, people are going to have some sections which are favourites, some sections which are... But it was really nice to see short filmmakers be part of something that was better. It's an interesting way of distributing short films. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And just to round out the film stuff that you've got going on, also a Borley Rectory, which I think I was celluloid last year, I caught. Um, that's uh, mm. about time for that to see the layer day as well. Mm. So that's going to be coming out from Nucleus Films. Uh, they're going to be doing a Blu-ray version of it with about six hours of extras. Wow. I think it's about six hours. I swear that's what Martin Morris said to me. I'm really pleased. Again, that's another one where I, it's just so nice to see a film and the filmmaker receive the love that their project deserves because Ashley Thorpe spent years yeah, creating this Borley is, this Rectory. This is a real labour of love for Ashley. Yeah, I mean, Julian Sands, who's the narrator on the film, turned up unexpectedly when we were doing the uh, Fright Fest, when we were doing the promo, showing the promo mm-hmm. uh, in one of the films. And he was saying, you know, that it recorded Julian's original narration back in 2011. Wow. Oh. Which is when it was supposed, you know, the original idea was it would be a short film, a 15, 20 minute. But this thing just kept on growing like Topsy, which is great, except as Ashley says, he, you know, for those who don't know, it's all done in rotoscope, which means that we filmed in front of green screen. And then Ashley added everything, everything, every background and every shot became like a work of art as far as he was concerned. So yeah. it took him a long time to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's good that like, um, like you say, it's good that something that somebody and people have worked too hard on in so long on is going to get the kind of treatment it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these are very safe hands with Nucleus. And they seem from what I've seen of the, um, the extras and the menu items, there really is a lot of stuff there the guys at nucleus they've been absolutely slavish about the stuff that they've put out lately between the kind of remasters of old old italian films and stuff and the newer kind of documentary stuff they've been putting out they are not afraid to jam pack stuff with as much as they can get in there and i think the stuff that they're putting out is pretty cool yeah and and extraordinarily as well one of the things that came up when we were making uh when we were showing bolly rectory at uh, celluloid screams as you mentioned mitch ashley had mentioned that one of his inspirations was the Osborne book of ghosts, which had a thing about Borley Rectory. Mm-hmm. And, and through the making of the film and its release, etc., Osborne are actually reissuing the book with an introduction by Reese Shearsmith. Oh, that's cool. amazing. That's yeah. Cool. And Reese Shearsmith apparently was a huge fan of that book and had actually created a card because it, it contains a diagram of Paul rectory in the book right he'd actually recreated the house the rectory in the cardboard and made a cardboard model of it slavish to detail 
Wow. So I, I think that, yeah, lots of great things happening around this release. That's great. That, that, no, that, is, that really is great. That's, the, that's, yeah, that's remarkable. However, Nick, something a little different coming up that you wanted to take a minute to talk about. Yes. I am doing a one-man show. And every time I say this, there's a huge, great gulp. <laughs> is it the um, Great American Songbook, Nick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so this is I Am Monsters. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about it. Yeah, so basically this is an autobiographical show uh, about literally from when I first encountered monsters and became fascinated by them. So I first became entranced by monsters when I borrowed a library book, aged about eight, something like that. And I managed to find a copy of that very self-same book. It was published in 1958. Uh, I was amazed. I found a beautiful copy of it. And it was the illustrations and it was the monsters. So this show is really about my fascination with monsters and also the times in my life when I've I felt like a monster and felt like right. the outsider um, way before I met Clive. Um, right, okay. Because, you know, one of the things that it's about making meeting Clive, it's, it's sharing extracts from the classics of horror literature that I read as a teenager, such as Frankenstein, Dracula, Phantom of the Opera, and melding all that into the story as to examining, you know, why do I feel I am a monster? I would also be kind of putting the filming of Hellraiser into a historical context. You know, we made Hellraiser like three months before the UK government published the or, or broadcast the, the John Hurt Don't Die of Ignorance AIDS campaign. Yeah, okay. Yeah, by the time we did Nightbreed, then Section 28 of the Local Authority Act, which forbade the promotion of homosexual relationships as pretended family um, wow. relationships was being passed into law. So trying to provide some sort of historical context uh, as well, as, but as well as just a few laughs. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom, folks. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm very aware my first duty is to entertain. So that will be at the Pleasance Theatre in London, from the 8th to the 10th of October, it opens the London Horror Festival. Oh, wow, that's okay, cool. cool. Which runs from the 8th of October through to the beginning of November. Okay. This is the ninth year of the festival, and there are 30 shows uh, which are part of the festival. You know, all sorts of things from improvisational comedy. To, we've got companies coming in from Italy and Ireland and Dublin, I believe all with their own view of uh, horror, what it takes to be a horror theatre. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, I'm very honoured to be open. To, <laughs> literally the first performance of the festival will be my one-man show. Incredible. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm very excited by it, completely terrified. What's the kind of... The where's and the hows of this? Where can people get tickets for it and that kind of thing? Right. So tickets will go on sale by second uh, of, of September. Okay. Right. You'll okay. be uh, you'll be able to buy those either from the Pleasance Theatre website or you can follow the links from the London Horror Festival website. Okay. And they are twelve pounds for full price and ten pounds for concessions. Okay. And in, and the show's only an hour hour long, but does involve uh, does include a ten minute Q and A at the end of the show. Right. Okay. So, um, Fifty minutes of me telling stories and jokes and so on, mm -hmm. and forming extracts, and then any questions that anybody wants to ask. Um, yeah, it's, it, come along and bring lots of friends because it's in the main house. Excellent. Uh, other pleasants. It's two hundred and thirty seater, so bring lots of friends. Jeez, wow. We'll do. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll do. We'll do some posting up with some links and stuff like that when the ten comes. Out, isn't it, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And Nick, just before we wrap up, where can people keep up with you in social media? Easiest place is www.nicholasvince.com. Uh, you can sign up for a newsletter for the show there. Otherwise, on Facebook and Twitter is where I mostly am. I am also there on Instagram, but I haven't posted there recently. Okay, <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> Nick, yeah, it's been so much fun having you on and having a chance to uh, get in depth about Hellbent, but also just uh, all these amazing projects you've been working on in the last little while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Nick. And on a personal note, I miss you. And uh, I hope to see you again soon. Next time you're up, you can come and sniff my baby. <laughs> 
which is the sweetest invitation I've had in such a long time. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm really pleased that you both enjoyed Hellbent. Yeah, we did. We, we definitely did. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. My pleasure. So a rare first watch for you tonight. Yes, yeah, yeah. But do you know what? I like it. I yeah, like it. Yeah. I can't have seen everything. I know. Now you know what it's like to be me. <laughs> Kinda. Good God. <laughs> I have seen the other side of my friends. I've, I've gazed at it there, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> a huge thank you to uh, Mr. Nicholas Vince for joining us to talk both Hellbent, the incredible year that he's had for We Are Many, uh, Book of Monsters, and of course, I Am Monsters, the upcoming one-man show. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, keep an eye on Nick's social media for all the info that you need on that one. We'll also be letting you know uh, where and when you can pick up some tickets for that as well. Yeah, and on the subject of social media, Mitch, how can people get in touch with us? Oh, Andy, I'm so glad you asked. Facebook and Instagram, Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can email Longer Considerations, musical interludes for the minisodes, <laughs> uh, listeners' choice episode suggestions, and Mitch's pitches ideas. Yeah, and just general flopping. Yeah, that too, to Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com. Yes, you can. And if you want to find out where you can listen, this would normally be the point where I would list off a big, massive amount of podcast providers. But to be honest, the easiest thing you could do now is go onto our website, strongviolentpod.com, and you'll find everywhere linked there on the homepage. So you can pick to your heart's content, which is your preference, and listen there. But please, please do just keep in the back of your mind that Podbean are legends and heroes and also our hosts. Absolutely. And don't forget, uh, whatever platform you use, if you're feeling generous, you want to spread the word, then uh, please do consider hitting the subscribe button, the share button, all that stuff, leaving us to be rated in the review. We have been reliably informed that it makes a difference. It does. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we, I guess that's just about it then. That is just about it. We will probably have some Fright Fest adjacent stuff coming up in the not too distant future. Yeah. Yeah, keep an eye on your feeds. There's probably going to be the odd things springing up here and there outside of the normal schedule. But on the subject of the normal schedule, we will be back on Monday with Minisode 68. All the usual stuff on there. We will be playing Mitch's Pitches, of course. We'll be taking a look at my progress through Shockwaves 100. We'll be talking about what we've been watching, taking a look at your feedback, all that stuff. Everything. That's right. We're back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.